comes to the question of the soul about the righteousness of God's involvements with mankind and says the following Zevate, I want to tell you this with a certainty that God established his world from the very outset based on concepts of justice in other words if we were to ask when God established his world, decided that he wanted to create a world and that he wanted to have a form of interreaction with his world, what did he put into the program, if you want to use uh, modern-day terms? What did he put into the program of the world so that the world should function correctly? So the intellect makes a statement which obviously needs tremendous support, but he says that the program, the uh, the, the floppy disks, if, if you want to call it, of the world are called justice. Mishpat. There is Mishpat there. And God does deal with his world in a way of straight justice, straightforward justice, and a consistency in that justice. That's a can of worms. And this you can see very clearly without any doubt good for the author and as the faithful leader or shepherd as he's metaphorically called which refers to Moses when he says at the end of a lifetime of service with the Jewish people God is tremendously powerful that's what the word sur means translated metaphorically into English but Tamim pa'alei, but his activities are tamim. There's a completeness to them. There isn't a deficiency in his actions. There's power, and at the same time, a completeness to his actions. And that, in normal human terms, is very often a contradiction. If you get somebody that's uh, tremendously powerful, he is either power, crazy, or when he does act in a powerful way, there are certain things that get lost in the shuffle of his power. Uh, there's an expression in Yiddish, which I'll translate into English as Mahak Tolz Fallen Spenner, which basically means that when you're knocking down trees, for lumber, splinters fall to the side. And when we talk about a person acting in powerful ways, there are usually people on the sidelines that get hurt or get stepped on. And what Moses is essentially saying is, no, God is sur. God has a tremendous amount of power that he exhibits. But, tamim pa'alai, at the same time, there's a completeness in what he does, and there isn't uh, a manifestation of deficiency in spite of the tremendous power that's being exhibited. This is a verse that Moses says, and it's going to need a book to prove, but this is what Moses is saying. He called Drach of Mishpat, all of his ways. In other words, what did he put into the program of the world? Mishpat, justice. Kela Muna, God is somebody that you can count on, you can trust upon that system. There is no crookedness in God's ways. Tzadik v'yashar, he is righteous and he is straightforward. This is a statement that Moses makes after a lifetime with a difficult people, as great as they were. This is the statement that Moses makes at, an end, at the end of his leadership of the Jewish people. Now, I would like to, as some of you might know from last week, I would like to just give um, an example 
of what this verse that Moses is saying means, the way the commentaries explain it. What is the statement? The statement is that God is powerful, and in spite of his power, there is no deficiency in the manifestation of his power, and there's no crookedness to it. Koldrach of Mishpat. What does that mean? What is the extent of it? Now, I'm not making it easier to understand. I'm making it more difficult to understand, but let's understand what is the statement. The statement is the following. Let's take as an example a person, let's say you have a, a child, use an example, I just went through supper hour. You have a child, and uh, the child's riding a bike, uh, falls off the bike because he's not looking where he's going, and he breaks his arm. Well, these things happen. Now, there are a lot of people that are affected by that broken arm. Uh, first of all, the child. The child has, to, uh, has the pain of a broken arm, then the delight of autographed cast, um, the pain of not being able to play ball until the cast comes off. The child is affected directly in many ways. That's, that's one person that's affected. Then the parents are affected. The parents might have, or should have, a certain amount of pain because their child was in pain. Uh, there is a certain degree of financial loss, even if you have medical coverage, we know all about that, involved in it. Uh, time off from work to take the person to the doctor when could have been doing something better. So the parents are involved in a certain way. The grandparents obviously are not involved in the same way. They cluck and they feel bad about it, but they're not so intimately involved with the child in the normal circumstances, but they're also affected. Uh, the children in class are also affected. The child gets a lot of attention. There might be another child or a sibling at home that feels that he's losing attention because this child is a nebuch, you know, is a pathetic uh, situation right now. So a child can feel that the focus is off him because the, my brother broke his arm. So there are a whole conglomeration of people that are affected in different ways by this child falling off the bike and breaking his arm. Essentially, what the statement that Moses is making, that when God does something, it has to be full, without deficiency, it means that the effect that it had on every single person was planned out and was justified for some reason. And were it to be that for one person it wasn't justified, it wouldn't have happened. Because if for eight people it's right, but for two people it would have touched them in the wrong way and it didn't deserve them to, to touch them in that way, so then it, there would be a deficiency in what God was doing. In other words, the kind of idea, you know, the end justifies the means and, you know, and people get hurt along the way and what can you do? You know, you gotta, you gotta keep focused on the main thing and if people get hurt, what can you do? That's exactly what Moses is saying, that it's not that way. What Moses is saying is, that's tamim pa'alo, there's a fullness. There's an entire spectrum, an entire scope. Now, what, what are the reasons for deserving? Obviously, this, that's a monumental question. Uh, what did the grandmother do? What did the grandfather do? What did the kid brother do? What did the teacher in school do? What did the parents do? Obviously, the questions involved in deserving are monumental questions, and we're certainly not going to answer them tonight. We need a whole forum for that. But the concept of Tum and Pa'ala means that it encompasses every person that's affected. That's what Tum Pali means. Now, that's mind-boggling. And it's a job that is only for God. 
It's not for anybody else because anything that we do, we usually have a hard enough time figuring out and sometimes we don't even think about it if it's justified for the one person that we're doing it to. And to try to take into calculation all of the other people that might be affected by it in in the present and in the future, you know, the the head becomes, you know, crazy from it. To think all of the possibilities is is nuts. I mean, for a person to be able to do something like that is, is unreasonable. But this is the statement that Moses is making. And the Seichel is saying, I, I can't prove it. I, the intellect is saying, I cannot prove it right now, instantly, without introductions, without concepts, without criteria. But this is the extent of how much we're going to have to explain in this book. So we're not going to, you know, we're not going to take the Kushner approach where, you know, be godly and excuse God for his mistakes. A Kushner approach to God's justice. No, Lozado is in, in no way scared uh, to be as challenged as possible with the question. In other words, I'm not going to. I'm not going to excuse away God and demand people to be godly for God's mistakes. Right? God doesn't make mistakes. So, does that make the problem worse? Yes, it does make the problem worse because it leaves even more to understand. Right? But Lozado says, I'm not going to look for the easy exit out. Excuse God for his mistakes. It's interesting. I don't want to get into it right now, but I once was speaking with uh, a, a basically secular Jew and um, and he had never heard of Kushner's book, and I introduced him to Kushner's book, which was a little bit of a paradox. So, And he said to me, in a very interesting way, I'm just saying this parenthetically, he said, if God makes mistakes, who needs him? <laughs> so that was very interesting. And what Lozado is essentially saying is, we're dealing with a God that we're... Pa'alo. There's a fullness in his justice. And it needs, it needs a tremendous amount to explain. Uh, this is what the intellect is saying. Let's go further. Amr Haneshama. So the soul says, Yaisha Mishpat Hazeh. It's this straightness of the justice, Va'omeka Eitza Hashleman, the depth of all of God's plans and plots, Shezacharta, that you've just mentioned, Humashani Chafetza Lishmayim Chaber Hatev. That's precisely what I want to start digging my teeth into. I want to understand that. Dover alboriyeh, and I really want to understand this well. Okay, um, does everybody have that? A lot of people just walked in. Does everybody have a sheet? Are there any more left? Yeah. Okay, so if you can just pass them out. Omaha Seichel. That last line on page fourteen or page fifteen, if you're following in the English. So the intellect says. <coughs> So the the um, the intellect says, The first thing that I want to clarify, who inyan mitzius haadam, I want to get into who is man, and what is the what are the obligations that are placed upon man. In order that we should understand what is the ultimate goal of all of this. Now let me explain where we are, where Lozado is coming from, how he's shifted the question a little bit. 
the intellect's answer here is, is the, what the intellect is saying is the following thing. The intellect is saying, we've just made a statement that God works with a system of justice. Right. Obviously, in order to get anywhere in the understanding of a system of justice, we have to know what is being judged. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. Let's say you, you're hired uh, on a probation. Two weeks. Let's see if you fit the job, you suit our, our needs, and after the two weeks, we'll make a decision. We'll have a board meeting if you're good for us, if you're not good for us. Right? So for two weeks, the person works at what they believe their job is and what the expectations are, and at the end of the two weeks, at the end of the two weeks, the board meets, and the board decides that this person's not for the job, and they pay the person for the two weeks, hopefully, and they say goodbye. So, without asking any questions, the person storms out of the office and says, these people are not justified in not giving me the job. Now, if the person knows what the necessities of the job were, what were their expectations, and knows them clearly, and then can match up. Did I perform to expectation? Did I perform to the need of the job? So once the person knows what the needs are and can feel reasonably well about having fulfilled those needs, then the person has a perfect right to feel that they haven't been dealt with correctly. But let's say you tap the person on the shoulder and say, before you blow steam and you really fly off the handle do you know what they really want from you? And the answer would come back, no, I didn't really know what my job was, but I was there, I clocked in at nine, left at five, on the dot, I potched it around, I didn't really know what they wanted from me from the last two weeks. For the person to walk out at the end of the two weeks and say I was bounced out unju unjustifiably is not a real mature way of dealing with it, because, in other words, I need criteria. I have to know. Obviously, hopefully, the person that's doing the hiring has criteria. But for me to judge if he's fear about it, and I have to know what the criteria are. So therefore, what Lozado is saying here is an extremely simple thing. When we judge God, quote-unquote, or we want to understand God's justice... By the way, there was a book by that title, right? right? I'm sure some of you are aware of it, Putting God on Trial. Right? We do that very quickly. But do we know what God's criteria are in his justice of mankind? If we don't know what the criteria... We can argue that the criteria are not fair. Right? We might want to argue that. But the, the first thing is, let's find out what the criteria are. Let's see what was God expecting, and how well did I fulfill those things, and then see if God's fear or not. But the logical thing is to know what criteria are. So that's what the, 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 the intellect is essentially saying. I made a broad statement about justice, that God programmed his world with justice. The Neshama says, yeah, that's very lovely, but I've got a lot of questions with that. So the intellect says, one second, you've got a lot of questions, but do you know what the criteria are? What is God expecting of man? To know what God is expecting of man, we have to know who man is. Right? If God is expecting man to do something that he can't do, so then even if we know God's criteria, then it's, it's, it's an unjustifiable situation. So essentially what Lozano is saying is two things. What is God expecting of man? Which leads to a deeper question. What are man's potentials 
that God is then expecting certain things of man. And that's a very interesting thing, God's expectations of man. That's a very broad statement. Who says God is expecting anything? Uh, you know, but this is the way Lozado states it. And we're going to develop this concept of God's expectation of man. What does God reasonably expect of man? But essentially what the, the intellect is doing here is a logical sequence. You want to know God's justice? Okay, that's the legitimate question. But let's find out. What is expected of man? Who is man that is expected of man? That's, that's what the intellect, that's the shift that the intellect has taken to the question. So the soul continues and says, This definitely needs a lot of understanding. Man is a very complicated individual, very, very complicated. In order to understand man and what are the reasonable expectations of man, that needs a lot of understanding. Okay, so now the Seichel launches into this question. So the intellect continues and says, I want to tell you the ABCs in terms of this question, the first principle. Upon which everything else is built upon it. In other words, I am now going to tell you certain material, which is extremely basic material, extremely basic material, but it's fundamental. It's the foundation upon which Judaism uh, builds itself. And that is, Sheratza haratzen ha'elyain shiyyeh ha'adam mashlim es atzmai ves kol hanivra b'shvilai that God wanted, it was God's will, and we'll talk about why Lazaro talks about his will, that man should complete himself and fulfill himself for everything that he was created to fulfill. Now, that's a, a tremendously big statement, and let's try to get, let's try to break it down into its pieces. What is Lazaro saying here? What Lazaro is saying here is basically the following thing. And this is supported from other works that Lazaro wrote, which I'm sharing with you in, in the development of this text. Lazaro, in other texts, and it's not unique to Lazaro, it's, it's, it's classic in Jewish philosophy, and that is that God pre-existed everything that he created. And when we talk about a world that exists, it's because God willed that world. God wanted a world to come into being. It wasn't as if a situation was forced upon God. Okay, I got a world in front of me, let me get to work and do something with it. It was a situation in which God initiated, because of a will, to create a world with everything that's found in it the world that we're talking about. There are other worlds, but I'm not going to get into spaced-out conversations tonight. Let's just talk about this world, <laughs> which, interestingly enough, in many texts, is called the Eilam HaTacht, in the low world. Right? Just in case any of you are depressed, this will help it. <laughs> so, Eilam HaTacht, in the, low, the lowest world, in a, in a certain sense. So, we start with the premise that God is Rishon. He's the very first and nothing else was before him. If there's a phenomenon of a world in front of us, it is because God willed that world into being. Now, 
the question that always comes up with willing something into being, without discussing how God creates, which is not for us. But if God willed something into being, obviously there was a purpose. Most people, when they want something, and they do something to get it done, usually have a reason behind it. So if we talk about a world coming into being through willful creation, we are immediately uh, giving God as much credit as we give any intelligent human being. There was a reason for it. There's a purpose behind it. What is the purpose for God to create a world? Which is something which Lozado is going to expound on. I'm just giving you uh, an overall uh, perspective of what's going on. What was the purpose of the whole thing? And essentially what Lozado is going to develop here is the following. That God being a perfect being, a perfect being and a whole being is a personification of goodness. Now, I'll explain that a little bit, but let's just start off with the fact that God is a perfect being, a whole being. A whole being that doesn't have deficiency has, with by virtue of that perfectness, has what I call loosely the desire to do good. Now, let me explain what I mean. A person, in human terms, let's try to make a comparison to human terms because those are the associations that we can deal with. A person can be a benefactor of another person because the other person is a sorry sight. And because the person is such a sorry sight, I either have guilt feelings or I feel bad. And by giving to this person and helping this person, I'm helping the person. I'm also taking care of my feelings that are so terribly involved with the deficiency of this person. But now, that is very, that is very commendable and it's very, very noteworthy. But after everything is said and done, the motivation of giving to the other individual is based on the deficiency of the other individual. Because the other person is deficient and it bothers me for some reason, I am going to try to remove that deficiency. It might even be because I have to take guilt away from myself or because I feel bad, which are all commendable things, but it's coming out of a strength of of a deficient situation. There's another way of giving. There's a way of giving where because I'm a good person, because I don't feel that by giving I'm losing, but by giving I'm becoming a broader person, that I want to give because I want to give because it's a positive thing to do. Not because the other person is missing or because the person is in dire need or because I feel guilty, but because I'm here and I'm comfortable with myself and I know that by giving I'm not losing, but I'm gaining and I'm broadening my horizons. It comes out of a wholesomeness of myself out of being shalem, out of a certain wholeness of myself. Where do we see this? Very often, people that are happy with what they're doing in life, and they're basically happy with their relationships, are very often also giving people. Why? Because they're operating with a certain sense of wholesomeness, and in a sense of wholesomeness, there's a nice good morning, and I can help you, and I can take time out, and I can spend on you, and there's no problem, because it's coming from a a sense of wholesomeness. I wake up on the wrong side of the bed or my check bounced the day before and things are a little bit rough. Don't get near me. 
Why? Because then I feel a certain degree of deficiency or I feel very constrained and then I can't give. Essentially, if we can transpose this to God as a form of comparison, it's not exactly the same thing. Essentially, what we're saying is that being that God is a perfect being, a whole being, uh, not of a physical nature, but of some spiritual nature, there is a desire on God's part to give, to be mative. In, in other words, to bestow of His goodness. To bestow of His goodness requires the creation of a recipient of that goodness. And that is identified as, as a, f- a fundamental reason of God's connection to His world. Now, there is a very philosophical, complicated aspect to this. Does God need to give? In other words, he's perfect, he's whole, in other words, which means that there is no deficiency, but the quality of being whole is to give. But does that mean that God must give? That's a very complicated philosophical question. The answer to it is no, God is not compelled to give, but the characteristic is a characteristic which flows. By its nature, it flows. So this is something which, in human terms, is difficult to understand. If you have to do something, if you have a desire to do it, so in a certain sense, you are dependent upon that desire because that desire is driving you. Desires don't drive God. God establishes what he's doing, which is a very complicated thing which comes up later. I don't want to get involved in it. But the premise, what was the energy that created the world? God's plan to give. Ratzalahet. If he wants to give, he wants to give. Now, <coughs> being that God wants to give, right, now God plans out the way in which he can give in the greatest form of giving. It's not good enough for God to just want to give. But God wants to give, and being that God is wholesome and perfect, what is coming out of his giving is, I want to give, but I want to give in the best way that it's possible. What is the best way that it's possible to give? So this Lozado introduces a very interesting concept, and that's the concept that the best way of giving is that the person should create a way of developing a deserving way of growing. In other words, God could have created man perfect, but then the giving would have been a handout. It would have been a spiritual welfare instead of a physical welfare. It would have been a handout, a spiritual handout. That's not the ultimate gift to mankind. The ultimate gift to mankind is to give the person the ability to grow through his own, through his own struggles, through his own work, Why? Because the development is much deeper, number one, because it's not a handout, he worked at it. Number two, there's a question of dignity involved, self-worth. All those questions are involved. So therefore God says, yes, I could have made you picture perfect. I could have given you everything and you could have been the spoiled spiritual giant. But it's a much better thing if I create you with the potential to be fulfilled but that you have to work at it. You have to struggle. You have to make decisions. You have to create priorities. And you have to work it through because then your development is deep, your growth is significant, and it's coupled with and, it gr- and moves along with self-worth. In a certain sense, man then becomes very much of a creator of his own self. 
and he's very similar to God in that sense. Right? Now, I'm saying that for certain reasons which are going to come up. Maybe they'll come up in questions. But this is the basic format that Lozado is starting with. God wants to do good. He wants to bestow of his goods. That was the motivation for the creation of the world. What is the ultimate way of doing it? That man should struggle, work, toil, and develop it slowly because it's deeper, there's self-worth involved, so on and so forth. This We're going to see it in the text itself, but that's the premise that Lozado is working with. Now, <coughs> there is in this there is in this statement, we're going to go into the text in a few moments, there is in this statement um, a tremendous amount of implications. All right? And I'd like to share with you a few of them so that you might appreciate a little bit better wh- where Lozado is coming from. What's, what's the point of what he's trying to say? In, in other religions, and I'm sure that most of you are not here to, for a course in comparative religion, but in other religions there is a concept of original sin. A concept which essentially says that man is born in sin or that the motivations of sin are involved in his very coming into the world and being conceived and therefore man carries around with him a permanent deficiency. And the end of that philosophy is obviously that you have to connect to something and believe in something and that's the only way you'll be saved, if you're familiar with it or not. But that's, that's the gist of the philosophy. Right? The gist of the philosophy is that there's a deficiency, you can't help that deficiency, and therefore you gotta, you got to look for help, you got to hook into something, you got to believe in something, and that's, that's your savior, that's what's going to save you. Now, Judaism is diametrically opposed to that whole concept. The way Judaism looks at deficiency, the way Judaism looks at chesarin, which is the Hebrew word for having something missing, is that it's a provisional state, it's a temporary state that, by definition, sends out one message to man, challenge for growth. That's the message that it's sending out to man. That's the message that it's sending out. In other words, I've, God purposely creates man with certain things lacking. Not permanently lacking. Not permanently lacking in any way. But lacking. Right? But in order to create a challenge, in order to test man, in order to push man up against the wall to make decisions, to have priorities. So it's the, the challenges that are given to man are, number one, not permanent. One, the deficiencies are not seen as permanent, indelible handicaps, number one. And number two, they're seen as a positive thing. They're seen as a tool to grow, an enticement to grow, a challenge to grow. That's what they're looked at. Let me give you an example of this. I shared this with a, with a number uh, of people in this group in different, in different situations. There was a disciple of a great Hasidic master by the name of Reb Cohen, who once wrote a letter to his teacher and mentor, Reb Cohen, and said that, um, I'm no good. I'm, uh, I'm not a clean person in moral ways. And no matter how reasonable, I'm just not cut out for this business, Judaism and morality and holiness and this whole thing. It's not. I tried and it didn't work. 
And this is the letter that he's writing to his teacher. Seeming to seemingly very, very, you know, a very nice person. He's so honest with himself and everything. So his teacher writes him back a letter in which he says to him, I have two criticisms of your letter. First of all, you're arrogant. Number two, you're totally wrong. Why? You're arrogant to assume that you are such a uh, malach, such an angel, that you shouldn't have on a daily basis or a semi-daily basis all kinds of temptations. God created you that way. And for you to assume that you're like above it all and you're some kind of an angel, you're arrogant. God created and he put into you that particular that particular deficiency because God wanted you to be tempted he wanted you to be challenged he wanted you to think he wanted you to make choices and to grow and for you to assume that you're all you're above it all you you and or that you can get there you know like that this is that it's an arrogant perception of yourself that's number one number two the conclusion that you reached is exactly the opposite of the truth. Why? So you said the following thing. From what a person's challenge is, one can understand what his potential is and what he can really become. Because not everybody has the same challenge that you have. Some people have the challenge of being honest in business. Other people have challenges of not being boastful. You know, uh, or arrogant. Other people, everybody has a different challenge. You happen to have a challenge which you've identified as being, you know, very grubby, you know, in terms of morality. But the truth of the matter is that if you got that challenge, it means that God gave you the potential to be able to, to overcome that. The potential of overcoming that kind of challenge of morality has to be a tremendous potential of holiness. So contrary to what you believe that you don't belong altogether, it's, it's the exact opposite. You have more potential for holiness than the other person in the street that doesn't have your challenge. Because for every challenge that's given to you, you're given a potential to be able to deal with it. So you're given a challenge which is a very physical one. So you have to be given an opposite spiritual potential to be able to deal with it and overcome it. You're gifted. This is what the teacher told his student. Now, that's you know, s somewhat hard to, to, to swallow, but it brings out the point very, very strongly of how Judaism looks at deficiency. Judaism looks at deficiency, yes, as purposefully implanted, but purposefully implanted as a, as a challenge to grow. And the challenge to grow means that there will be a potential to be able to overcome that. Not all at once, not all at once, but that's the way the person's going to grow. Now, that opens up a tremendous area in terms of a person finding. You know, people always ask the question, what was I sent here for? What's, what, what, where, where am I supposed to grow? How am I supposed to develop as an individual? And this is a very, uh, you know, a very glib way, a very loose way of answering the question, but it's the beginnings of an answer. That chances are that a person can find their particular area by understanding where their biggest challenge is. In other words, wh where, where do I have my biggest challenges? 
what and, and every person has a different you know different peckle a different package of things to deal with in terms of challenge chances are that the thing that's the the items that are the hardest for me to so to speak raise myself out of and grow out of our chances are that's what i was brought here for to bring those potentials to bear in order to overcome those challenges and this is essentially where Lozato is starting from. What Lozato is saying is that the first thing I want to tell you is that God, not out of a meanness, not out of being a sadist, not because he was pinching pennies, he created every person with a certain amount of deficiency that came out of uh, a discipline on God's part to give to the person in the deepest way that it's possible to give. Let me give you one more example and then we'll go to the text and we just covered a page of text. Let's, let, let me just give you one example. There's, there's, a, there's a part of Psalms which is called Halal Hagadol. What is Halal Hagadol? The great praise. If, if we have it in the Haggadah. We say it in the Haggadah. What it is is we have a, a short phrase of something that God did and then we say Kilalam Chasta, forever is God's kindness. And we go through historically many things that God did with the Jews from the very beginning of times, straight through the Jews' entrance into the land of Israel. And if you count it up, there's 26 of these things. And after each one of these good things that God did for us, it says, forever is his kindness. There's 26 of them. It's a long list. The howl that we say once a month when Rish Chodesh comes only has four. It's an abbreviated kind of version of it. But the real one is 26 long, and it's Halalagadol, the big praise. So the Talmud tells us that that is, which is 26 praises of God, is symbolic of 26 generations, the first 26 generations of creation. That God sustained his world with simple, undeserved kindness to mankind which dates up to the giving of the Torah up to that period of time. There were 26 generations. This is what the Talmud says. So, Kila Olam Chasto is referring to loving kindness that was undeserved. God just gave it. The kind of kindness that we have, if we think of it, from the moment that we're born. We didn't do anything to deserve it, but every moment we're living with all, all kinds of tremendous gifts. And we didn't do anything to deserve it yet, undeserved kindness. So most people when they learn this piece of Talmud, the way they interpret it is that for 26 generations God gave carte blanche. You know, undeserved, no problems. After that God said, you know, I, I had enough of loving kindness. Now, now deserve it. Loving kindness is over, now we start deserving. So one of my teachers of blessed memory Rabbi Hutner explained that that's not what the Talmud is saying. What the Talmud is saying is that for 26 generations the loving kindness was on a superficial level because it was undeserved. After 26 generations, God said, I want to continue giving, but I want to set up a system by which you work and you're challenged and you grow through challenge, which doesn't mean loving kindness is ending, but I'm taking it into its next step, into a deeper step, where the relationship becomes a relationship that is a relationship where what you are is because you've toiled and troubled, where the relationship is that what you finally get is much deeper because you've deserved it, where there's a self-worth that is, is going along together with it. 
So it's not the end of loving kindness, but a deeper stage of loving kindness. And that's where the entire system begins, where God establishes expectation of man. I will create you with certain things lacking, certain deficiencies, certain things that have to be completed. I will give you the potentials that are matched to it, which is every person's unique neshama. Every person has a different neshama. The neshama is the potential to deal with that unique challenge. And that's the relationship that's seen between what seems to be a question of deserving and reward and punishment and the goodness of God. They're not contradictory terms. We grow up that punishment and the whole word deserving is justice and love and everything else has nothing to do with it. And what Lazaro is saying is that the maturity of Jewish philosophy says that sometimes love is the demand, the expectation of wanting, of, of, of working something through and coming to deserve it. And that's the same thing. You can go over to a person and you can give the person $10. Or you can give the hand the person a manual and say, study this manual and I'll give you a job. Which one is a, a greater form of loving kindness? And that's essentially what Lozado is trying to say. When we, in other words, when we're beginning to approach the whole issue of justice, expectation, deserving, God's criteria for judging man. So, you know, we get, we get very nervous. Why can't we talk about God's love as an introduction? Why do we have to talk about justice and deserving? So what Lazaro is saying, and it's, it's sometimes a hard thing to swallow, is that's the real love. The love that's enhanced through, the love that's enhanced through uh, a mature relationship with his giving, with his challenge, with his sincerity, where, it's, where it, it just doesn't, you know, just go easy and smooth. But where there's a real, where the people are extending themselves, they're giving in terms of what's, what's going on. This is what he's saying. Now, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll go through the text now because we'll be able to appreciate the text two or three paragraphs, and then I'll take questions on this concept. We're starting the paragraph over again, and we'll, we'll read inside, and then I'll take questions on this, on this first concept. The first principle, upon which the entire uh, structure of the Judaism stands, is that God willed. Okay, you see the stress on the word will? God didn't have a need for it, but He willed it to be. That the human being should fulfill himself as and everything that was created for him. Now this is a very profound concept. What Lazaro is saying over here is that when man grows and elevates himself, it's not only his own personal growth that he is affecting, but everything that he utilizes in order to, to create that growth and that sense of fullness also receives an elevation with him. Anything that I use, anything that I include in this project of growth also becomes elevated. If it's the food that I eat, if it's the people that I use, if it's the climate that enhances it. I come from California. <laughs> Whatever the person takes from that outside world that he uses and contributes 
that aids him in his process of growth, those things themselves reach their purpose. They reach a higher plateau. The whole concept of the different things in the world that God created, let's say items that ultimately become food substances, right? were the food never to be consumed and never to be eaten in a, in a, in a mystical sense, if we would want to call it that, the thing wouldn't be reaching its, its, its purpose of creation, its completeness. But being that it contributes to my diet, it gives me the health or the strength that I need to do what I have to do in terms of my mission and purpose, so that also becomes elevated in, in my pursuit. So there's a concept of a unity of elevation that's, that's accomplished through what man is doing. And that's what he's alluding to. He's throwing it in a parenthetical concept. I mean, it's a monumental concept, but he's just throwing it in over there. And this way of establishing the world, this will be man's greatest merit, that he works at it on his own, and his greatest reward. And now he explains. His greatest merit, it's his greatest merit because after everything is said and done, we can point to this person and say what he is today is because he was determined to do it and he did it. That's the greatest merit of man. Man's determination and following through on his determination. That's the greatest merit of man. And his greatest growth comes from that. And when he finally reaches his goal, when he finally reaches his goal, he enjoys the fruits of his own toil and trouble. And that's very sweet. It's completely different than somebody handing it out to you. And on the other hand, what is his reward? And it's also the most rewarding thing. It's his greatest merit because he did it. And it's also his greatest reward. Why? Because by virtue of the fact that he was challenged and he worked it through, who grew? because of it. He, the person himself grew. And that's the greatest reward. Now, I must stop over here to just tell you a again, Luzado has made a tremendous statement in terms of how we look at the whole concept of reward and punishment. Other than the statement that it comes out of God's commitment of love and the supreme way of giving, so man has to deserve so there has to be a system to keep it in check. Now he's saying something else. He's saying when we talk about reward and punishment, reward and punishment is ultimately not an external condition that is imposed upon man as a response to what man is doing. Isn't that how we most, most of us think of it? Do this and I'll give you a lollipop. Do this and I'll give you a pat on the back. Do this and I promise you X amount of dollars. So we, I do one thing. And then there's an external response. And then the negatives, which nobody's interested in hearing. Do this and I'll blow your brains out. Do this and I'll smack you in the face. And again, we see it as an external response. Lazaro is saying that really, really, reward and punishment are not external responses of God to man. But that God made man in a way that what man does, both positively and negatively, is a self-inflicted reward or punishment. Now, that's monumental. In other words, what he's saying is the following. If a person is challenged to do the right thing or to the wrong thing, 
and he works it through and he sweats and he thinks about it and he tosses and turns and he doesn't know what to do and he finally pushes through and he says, I'm going to do what's right. Whatever he takes to his, to his strength, you know, to his force to fight it. That person is a different person after the fight. And that is his deepest reward. He's a different person because he fought for that concept, for that principle. He's a different person. He's grown from the experience of that challenge. And that is ultimately the spiritual reward. Now, there are two things which are confusing with that. Does that mean that there's no world to come? Number one. And number two, what happened to all of the promises that the Bible, that the Chumash talks about? To say, you know, you're going to have this and that and the other thing. What? Those are the two questions that come up. So let's straighten those two things out. In terms of the world to come, yes, there is a world to come. But the world to come is the condition that the person creates for his soul. As, more, as developed as his soul is, that is the experience of spiritual pleasure that he has even after the physical ter- termination of life. So if he was challenged in a very significant way, and he overcame the challenge, so his soul grew from that experience. So when his physical existence terminates, he has a soul which is very alive because it lived through a challenge and it grew from the challenge. And it therefore can experience spiritual pleasure, the fruit of the very challenge that it accomplished. Essentially, what it's saying is that the world to come isn't some place near Hawaii or Honolulu or the Caribbean and you have a pass if you were a good boy and you get into a place that's created. I'm saying it in a metaphorical sense. It's not. It's it's self-development of the neshama. And the more challenge and the more success that we have at the challenge, the more developed the neshama is. And the person is building his own world to come in that sense. Similarly, in terms of punishment, it also works in the same kind of a way that we hurt ourselves. We constrain our potentials. We aren't what we can be by virtue of things that we did or didn't do. So we can't be who we really are. And that's ultimately the, hurt, the biggest hurt that a person goes through. If a person can see in front of themselves clearly what they could have been and what they are, right, that is the deepest hurt, the deepest punishment that we can talk about spiritually. And that's what he's trying to say over here. So there is a world to come, but it is created by what I do myself. Skare, that's my reward. That's number one. Now what do we do with all of the rewards that the Chumash talks about? Right. So let me tell you two things about the rewards that the Chumash talks about. First of all, to the extent that they are literally defined as physical rewards for doing good, they are not the primary reward. They are only the rewards that are given to the person so that he should be able to continue doing what he's been doing. In other words, God's saying, I like what you're doing, and I want to create a good situation so that you can continue and do more. But they're not the reward. They just What God is saying is you deserve to have a good condition because you're using it well. But it's not the primary reward. The primary reward is the growth and the development that comes from what the person is doing. This, that God says you're going to have so much food that you're going to have to take it out of the silos and it's going to come in the right time and it's going to, it's going to rain when you're sleeping. and All of the different things. It's all secondary reward. And what it's saying is it means so much to you in doing the right things I'll create the situation that you can continue doing the right things. But it's not primary. Other than that, 
And this, by the way, is Maimonides' answer. I didn't think it up. Maimonides says this very clearly. The second part of it is that to the extent that those concepts are not taken literally and that they are metaphors of spiritual rewards, so then they altogether don't have an application in terms of this world. Then they're just metaphors of spiritual concepts, which is a very involved study. What does rain mean? What does harvest mean? They're metaphors of spiritual things of a world to come, which are the rewards for, for things. So either whichever approach you take in terms of how we define it, but one thing is true across the board, and that is that when we talk about reward and punishment, it is essentially that God creates man in a way that he inflicts it upon himself. He brings it upon himself in terms of reward, in terms of punishment. Now, let me, again, I can't control myself, let me give you an example so that we should be able to grasp it a little bit deeper, a little bit better. Let me try to give you an example. And tie together a couple of loose ends here. A person looks at his world and says, this is a wonderful world. Look how much good things God gave to me. I'm going to take them, use them in a way that I will move along in the way that God wants me to move along. So I'll take the food the way that God's giving it to me. I'll take God's successes and wealth the way God's giving it to me, and I'll use it that way. So the person sits down, uh, and I'm no spokesman of this. I'm just giving it to you as an example. A person sits down to eat. Let me just give you an example. A person sits down to eat. If he always keeps that motivation in mind, that it's there and God could have made it tasteless but healthy, but he made it tasty, depending upon who cooks it. But, and he appreciates the fact that God gave it taste, but he always keeps in mind that I'm not living to eat, but I'm eating to live, right? in that sense. So then chances are that he won't eat so much trash food, garbage food, junk food it's called. He won't overeat, or at least most of the time he won't overeat, Right? because it's kept in check. It's kept in the perspective of what it's there for and what am I doing here. I'm not living to eat, I'm eating to live. Right? And that person will be a basically healthy person. On the other hand, the person that says, you know, when I eat, it's nobody's business, including God. Right? And when I eat, I'm just, so to speak, I don't want to use the term, but there's a term, you know, for where you just eat for the sake of eating. Right? Chances are that person will overeat. He won't be so discretionary in what he eats. And chances are that somewhere down the line, not maybe right away, but somewhere down the line, he'll have either a heart condition or high blood pressure or both <laughs> and uh, some other things as well. Now, let's look at this picture. Let's look at the picture. Here we have two people. So what are you going to say? You're going to say that the person that looked at his, the function of eating with the proper perspective, God rewarded him that he didn't get an ulcer or a heart condition. And the person that looked at it with the wrong perspective, God punished him that he got a heart condition or high blood pressure. Maimonides, a great philosopher, Maimonides says, that's a lot of baloney. You did it to yourself. It just so happens that the way the Torah looks at life and if a person accepts the way that the person the Torah looks at life, it happens to be healthy. Because what God intended with everything that he put at man's disposal 
is the health of man. So the person that always ate for the right reasons, it's not that there was an external reward. It's because the world is programmed to, to function in, in the correct way, and man is, fu is programmed. So if, it's used the, if the world is used the right way and the machine called man is used the right way, nothing happens. It works. It's in, in high production. But if you take the machine that was made for one thing and you use it for something else, or you use the wrong current of electricity, in this case junk food, so obviously the machine's going to break. So what Lozado is saying over here is the only thing that we can say about God in terms of reward and punishment is that God programmed man to function healthy with his will, in God's will. In other words, what is the program of man? The program of man is that if man follows that which God says, this is the way that you should lead your life, so man is physically built in a way that responds in a healthy way to that. While on the other hand, if he, if he doesn't follow that set of rules, it's not that there's an external punishment, but you're programmed differently. You're supposed to run on 220 current and you put 110 in or vice versa. Of course the system's going to blow up. It's not going to work. Right? But what Maimonides is saying is that's because man was programmed to function the way that God wants him to. And if that's what he feeds into the system, so then the system works at, at, at capacity and everything's fine. Otherwise it eventually breaks down. That's part of the concept. I, I'm oversimplifying it, but that's part of the concept that reward and punishment is really the fruit of man's own doing. Right? As opposed to something which is externally imposed. And that has a tremendous amount of ramifications, by the way, because, because we very often um, talk about the fact, yes, I made a mistake, I did the wrong thing, I put the wrong thing into the, into the system, but why can't, why does God have to punish me? Why doesn't he just forgive me? He can do anything. Why can't he forgive me? I'm sorry about it. And the answer to that, in a certain sense, is that if a person swallows uh, a gallon of top job, and then he goes to the rabbi and he claps al chait, he confesses, I did the wrong thing, I swallowed a gallon of top job. <laughs> and he goes through all of the intricate steps of repentance. Right? he's still going to have a terrible stomachache. <laughs> yes. Because the system is built to reject it. And the system is built to revolt it, to get rid of it. And ultimately, in the long run, it's for the good of man. Right? We don't want that it should stay in. We want that it should hurt. We, should, we want that the stomach muscles should pump the stuff out, not ingest it and keep it in. And that's one of the places where it has around. In other words, where a person says, I, I said I'm sorry. Leave me alone. I said I'm sorry. What do I, what do I have to be? What do I have to go through a, a painful process after I said I'm sorry to you? Which is a very common question, especially Balei Chuva. People that have gone through a process of change, change sometimes find themselves in painful situations only after going through the change, after becoming a little bit closer to God, and they begin to wonder, like, what, what was this all for? You know, I'm getting closer to God or trying to get closer to God and things seem to be falling out of my life instead of falling into place. And the answer is is that it, it can very well be, okay, and I, mean, I don't mean to scare anybody off, but it could very well be that once the person has taken his life seriously, that that's when the whole process 
of, of uh, you'll excuse the expression of cleansing or purity first begins. Before the person had the awareness, it, it would have been wasted stuff on him. But it's when the person begins to tackle with the issues that then it becomes, it becomes important that the person should go through this process. All right, enough said for a literal translation of a paragraph. Let's go to the next paragraph. Amr HaNeshama, Zayisayit, this is a principle, Shekailu Pines Rabbis, that really encompasses many, many different corners of Jewish thinking. And I'm still waiting to hear, What are you going to build upon this foundation? Because then I'll be able to understand what you're driving at. Essentially, the soul is saying something very simple here. You made a monumental statement, but it's very abstract. Tell me what difference it makes, and then maybe I'll understand what you're talking about. But one question I can't contain myself, I must ask before anything else. Why did God want to create man with deficiency? Now, I told you the answer already, but if you look back at the paragraph, he didn't say why. He just said that God created man with deficiency, and man is to complete that deficiency. But why did God want that? So the intellect answers and says, The reason is simple. And it's really uh, tied to the answer of a different question. Why did God want to create a world? In other words, you're asking me the question, why did God cre- create man with deficiency? I'll ask you one better. What did God want you for altogether? What did he want you there for altogether? So the soul is very diplomatic. So answer your question and answer mine. And hopefully maybe they'll have the same answer. So the intellect says, The little that we can comprehend about this is that God is the epitome, the utter essence of good. And and that which is complete goodness wants to give of the goodness. The quality of goodness is that it spreads itself. This is why when Eliezer was looking for a marriage partner for Yitzchak, his servant's son, his master's son, he put so much credence into the love, uh, demonstration of loving-kindness on Rivka's part. That's the whole determination of a shidduch, of a marriage partner, if the person has loving-kindness. So the commentaries explain that what Eliezer was looking for was not the loving-kindness that came out of feeling bad, but the loving-kindness that came out of a natural flow, because you're a good person. So what Eliezer was doing is, it's not so much the loving-kindness, how much the person's going to share that I'm looking at. But the fact that there's a natural flow of goodness to another person means that that person themselves is at peace and whole with themselves. And that's, that is a marriage partner. In other words, if she's, so, if she's so complete with herself, she's so happy with herself, she's so full with